This is Energy Thinks, a podcast about how the oil and gas industry can future-proof against rising social risk and lead the world into the energy future. I'm Tisha Schuler, your host and the principal at Adamantine Energy. In this season, we've been talking to game-changing leaders, and on today's show, I speak with Matt Gallagher, former president and CEO of Parsley Energy and the new president of Green Lake Energy Ventures. Matt is a third-generation oilman. He started his career at Pioneer Natural Resources as a reservoir engineer. He began his time at Parsley um, Parsley Energy in 2010 as manager of engineering and geoscience. And in 2019, uh, as you'll hear, he became perhaps a reluctant president and CEO. Uh, Matt serves today on the boards of Pioneer Natural Resources in Chesapeake Energy. Uh, He graduated from our very own Colorado School of Mines with a bachelor's degree in petroleum engineering. You're going to hear some really interesting things, including what Matt has uh, in common with our Adamantine Energy intern, Scott Marshall. Um, And also, what is the responsibility of a game-changing leader to take on industry's shortcomings? That was an interesting theme that popped up again and again. You can learn more about this podcast and our work at Adamantine at our website, energythinks.com. I hope you enjoy my conversation with game-changing leader, Matt Gallagher. Matt, welcome. Thank you so much for joining me on the Energy Thinks podcast. Thanks for having me, Tisha. Looking forward to it. Awesome. So you've had a big year uh, selling Parsley to Pioneer, starting Green Lake Energy Ventures, and you were named to both the Pioneer and Chesapeake uh, Board of Directors. That will be fun to to watch and to hear about. Um, I have been making the case um, that oil and gas companies should put millennials at the center of their strategy. And if I've done my math correctly, you are in fact a millennial. But my guess is maybe your success is in spite of embracing your millennial characteristics, or, or maybe not. Um, give us your perspective on um, on how generational leadership plays in at this moment. Well, yeah, I think you got that right. It was definitely a big year. And most importantly, uh, it was capped off here just over a week ago with the birth of my baby daughter, Sophia. So first daughter in the family, and she is so special. Uh, oh. She's a week old yesterday. Congratulations. Yes, thank you. I don't know what generation they're calling that yet. So so she'll be the true leader, uh, mm-hmm. generational leader in the future. Um, but it's interesting hitting on this topic of generations and, and, and leadership. Uh, I'm fortunate. I feel like I'm kind of a bridge. I'm right at the uh, top side, I guess, of the millennial wave and was able to connect, you know, as we built a young, energetic, uh, forward-leaning, tech-leaning company connect with a lot of the people that were coming out of colleges and, and young in their careers. But also, you know, I was aspirational in, in my goals of where we could take the company and how we could have an impact on the industry. And, and maybe just a little bit more open-minded than maybe my, my father's uh, approach to the oil and gas industry as, as he had a company and, and uh, even my grandfather's uh, past that. So I was able to take, um, a little bit of tradition and a little bit of history, but see, you know, how can we, how can we push forward? How can we be a 
a beacon for other industries. There are some things that we were seeing that we weren't competing well at uh, across the industry. And I think having that open approach, and we were forced to kind of have a more open approach when we moved the company from Midland to Austin. You can imagine all the things that go along with that. Uh, but it was almost kind of refreshing to hear hear a fresh perspective and say, okay, how do we join in the conversation and not just uh, put bare our heads in the sand? So I think we tackled it pretty aggressively, but openly and had had good debate. And uh, along the way, built a built a good business and, and it's been fun. And we're trying to do that again on a much smaller approach uh, with Dream Lake Energy Ventures, focusing on uh, responsible produced hydrocarbons, but also you know looking at these emerging energy technologies, how can they fit in and be that bridge essentially. So trying to not do an either or, a lot of an and approach and, and kind of building off past successes, past traditions, feathering in the new. Mm, I, I love that. There's so, there's so much interesting there. And one of the pieces I'll just flag for our listeners is you alluded to your third generation oil and gas business family. Um, because I do think that one of the reasons that the oil and gas industry can embrace disruption and even be the disruptor is because we have this history. We have these core values. Uh, we have, as you said, these traditions to draw upon. And so you, um, you really wove all those together in a really interesting and unusual way. Um, so I, I also notice your use of, of bridge and we're bridging um, into the energy future, we're bridging into uh, across generations. And the way I think you and I talk about bridge, it's not this bridge that ends, it's this role that we play going forward. So I, I love the way you're setting us up here. So one of the ways I think you embodied this um, in 2020, right before uh, the pandemic really upended our lives, you uh, made quite a splash by proposing a shale new deal. Um, and at least to me, it seems like this is one of the ways that you're transcending some of these, these different divides. And you were really focused on Gen Z. So that's the generation after the millennials, but probably not the generation of your new daughter, although I don't know either. So tell us, um, tell us about how your thinking has evolved. You've had a whole year to think about this and some new responsibilities. Uh, how's your thinking evolving about how we engage Generation Z? Well, unfortunately, it probably got all reinforced because it was a little bit of a tough message to deliver. I wasn't sure I was going to be able to walk out of uh, the NAEP Convention Center without some security. Uh, and it was, it was intended to kind of poke at, at some of our shortcomings, but also address them and have a path forward. And those shortcomings were our perception across the country and really across the globe at this point. Um, second, our pollution. And third, our profit history. So if we could get one out of three of those correct, um, we'd be on much more solid ground. Uh, we're, we're 0 for 3. And we didn't go forwards much in 2020. In fact, we probably went backwards on maybe two of the three. Profit uh, was an abysmal year. Of course, when you're selling your product for a negative price, uh, mm -hmm. it's pretty hard to turn a profit. So everybody understood the why behind it, this global pandemic. But, you know, people are frustrated over the last decade, investors, of hearing the why. It's always uh, OPEC uh, surprised us here, or, um, you know, there's a new play over here that ramped up production 
And I think they're done with the why. They just want to see consistent profits. And our companies uh, across the industry can deliver in spades. It took, it's going to take a retuning. And it, that retuning has occurred. And it was going to start showing up in 2020. Uh, but I think you're seeing it in a, in a profound way in 2021. So that's, that's good that on the profit front, we're taking care of that kind of blocking and tackling. Uh, it leaves us with perception and pollution, which maybe go hand in hand, hand in glove. Um, on the pollution front, I wasn't hearing enough people talking or admitting about the emissions uh, that come from our industry, our products, instead of, um, you know, they were maybe single source picking a plastic straw. And how do we improve on that and getting, taking a side for or against that cause? But there's something, an opportunity much bigger here. These, these products are life-saving and, and if anything, and life-expanding and innovation uh, sparking. So if you, if we went through the pandemic without uh, the, KN90, the K95 masks or the N95 masks, uh, well, those are our products that are, that are helping save millions of lives. And then you think about the, the medicines and the delivery uh, mechanisms and the plastics, these are great products. And so we have a great message to tell, uh, but there's, there's byproducts from the manufacturing process. There's emissions associated with it. And we have, just as cars, uh, internal combustion engines over the years have developed catalytic converters and different, uh, different ways to lower a more efficient burn from the spark, more ways to reduce those emissions. We can do the same at factories across the globe and plants. Uh, so there's an opportunity here. We just kind of need to start talking about it. And that ties into to our perception. And that's, that's where I keyed in most with Gen Z. And unfortunately, you know, in our industry, it's usually a, a second generation or third generation type of person, because if you don't have that exposure to the industry, to see how good it is, to see the breakthroughs that we're making, uh, you're, you're being told half the story or maybe even less. And, and a lot of the talent is finding interest elsewhere in, in coding, technology, biotech. Um, of course, all of them use our, our products and our services and our energy. Um, so we want to we want to pull that Gen Z back in, uh, that talent back into our industry and have further breakthroughs. Um, but the polling on the perception is, is abysmal, and and we're just we're not really um, addressing it as an industry. We're not uh, helping in the education sector. Uh, a lot of our employees at Parsley would try to volunteer their time at, at high schools. Um, we just need to get out and talk about it. I grew up in Indiana in small oil field, but none of my friends had any idea that there was even oil in and around Indiana and the Illinois basin. You know, I'd say 90% probably of our youth have never seen a rig. They're not impacted by the day-to-day -day operations, but they still have more often than not a negative connotation. And uh, I think you saw the statistics back in the NAEP speech. And why is that? It's all messaging, and we have not put together our own our own messaging front. So um, that was something that that we were working on back in the day. So I hope to kind of rekindle that uh, here shortly and, and get a concentrated message out that we can share with the youth of our our country. I I couldn't agree more. So many important things there, and um, I one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you and that uh, we our team identified you as a game changing leader 
is because this idea of poking at our shortcomings at an industry as an industry is actually important because um, external parties poking at the industry has just gotten really politically polarized. And I, I do a lot of talking about that. So we don't have to go into that. But, but where we are going to evolve and transition into civic leadership to create the energy future, it's going to have to come from disruption within our own ranks. And I love it that, um, that you do that from a position of knowledge, um, strength, but also clearly passion for the industry and, and what we, we have to do. So I'm um, as we head into 2021, I think all of us are starting to feel optimistic about the future. Of course, you have a baby, so you're probably feeling very optimistic about the future. Um, but also your other baby, Green Lake Energy Ventures, um, are you, uh, tell us a little bit about what you're hoping to accomplish and does Green Lake Energy um, Ventures take on some of those shortcomings directly or indirectly? Yeah, I think uh, it better or else, you know, I'm just blowing hot air. And, but that's gonna be a big challenge. You know, when you have the resources and the scale of these larger companies, um, you're afforded the ability to make sure you're running a second VRU and uh, you're, you're spending the upfront costs, which I truly believe have a long-term uh, return on the investment, uh, especially at the larger company levels. So this is, this is an attempt we're gonna try uh, when, when we get a viable project um, to do it um, at the most responsibly produced manner. Um, I would say, I guess the bells and whistles uh, approach to make sure we're having the lowest impact possible and to really you know, uh, assess the, even the financial and the returns impact on that in the near term, what it really takes to do this um, the right way. And there's gonna be some challenges uh, being, being a smaller project. You, know, you don't, don't get to order things in bulk and all of that, but you make up for it with kind of ingenuity and grit. And we had done it before as a team founding and starting Parsley and everybody, uh, you know, I, I remember days back when uh, it was three years of $100 oil and you couldn't find a frack spread to save your life. So we started uh, taking Chick-fil-A to the vendors, uh, to the Halliburtons and Cuds of the world and, uh, and BJs of the world. And imagine, uh, or it was, was a big surprise here in a couple of weeks when uh, their frack schedules opened up and Parsley Energy was able to get on the schedule. So that's a little bit of grit um, so you, you work through those things as a small company. So yeah, I do want it to be kind of a test bed for the latest and greatest on, on the, um, on the developmental approach. And then that'll probably be about 75% of the focus and then 25% working on the emerging technologies and, and, uh, and even some access to the already proven renewable and alternative energies. Uh, so seeing how they all kind of work together, um, not again, not this either or, but uh, all of the above approach. That's going to be really interesting. And we're going to want to have you back on um, once you have some stories to tell be between your th those ventures and then your, your di very different seats on the board of directors of larger established companies. Um, the, the idea of how oil and gas is going to continue to attract capital, how where oil and gas fits in an ESG dominated investment environment. These are all uh, things you're going to be playing with at these different levels of engagement. And we want to hear about and learn what you're learning so we can share 
those learnings with the industry as we move forward. Um, I'm going to pivot a little bit because another uh, really important thing in, in addition to engaging generations differently is talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion in our industry. And it's something that uh, there's a lot of focus on. And uh, at our firm, we argue that this is not going to go away, that companies really need to be uh, looking at this, this component of their business operations, but also their role within the communities they operate. So after um, the murder of George Floyd last year, um, you sent a, a, a letter, I think a very brave letter to your employees um, that was titled uh, Love and Respect. And I'm wondering if you could just talk about, again, uh, your perspective then or how your perspective is changing over the last year and the role as a leader in the industry. Um, what is our role in engaging diversity, equity, inclusion within our companies and within our society? Well, I, I hate to admit that it took that to realize I couldn't be in these types of positions a, a passive part um, of just doing, you know, one person trying their best to treat each other well. Um, you have to go the next step in when you're when you have the honor of having some of these positions and that moment um, when I when I watched that video, um, I was a new Twitter user earlier last year, and you know there's good, bad, and ugly on there, but um, you see things in in real time and usually unfiltered. And so that moment when I watched that, uh, pretty much as it as it was happening, as soon as it was out on Twitter, and, and to see George Floyd be murdered uh, was was just a horrible feeling. And I just couldn't even imagine putting myself in the shoes of the community that was most directly impacted. And I didn't know how to, um, how to express the feelings that, that were kind of almost overwhelming me. But I knew that coming back to two truths, uh, love and respect, and that, that will, will usually um, win the day and can bring people together and give people hope that there's, um, there's a better outcome on the other side. And, um, you know, I'm thankful, uh, just yesterday, the, the, um, the verdicts, three guilty, guilty, guilty across all the murder, uh, convictions, uh, came through as the, you know, full review of the data, uh, and, uh, and the situation as it happened. Um, so that's a step one in a healing process. But as we've seen, even since George Floyd, I mean, there's just so much more going on and, and it is pervasive across. There are, there are um, challenges that, um, that hit uh, communities in different ways that are, I would say structural. And we just have to first be acknowledged, acknowledge it. So it's a learning process for me. I've tried to increase my outreach um, to communities that I'm not uh, engaged with every day and, and it's been a uncomfortable but it's been a learning process but it's been extremely rewarding and I've made uh, really good friends along the way so it, it's just you know this the modern world the good thing about the pandemic was our travel and everything pulled back the modern world is so demanding with 24 7 news and and it feels like every time we turn we're being asked one more thing out of ourselves but I think this is one more thing that we have to as 
especially as Americans, we need to uh, reach out and we need to put it on our daily schedule to get uh, open our eyes a little bit uh, to this topic of diversity and equality and inclusion. And what does it really mean? And get outside of the checkbox role and engage and communicate and, and try to help help some people give give a little extra lift if you can, or at a minimum, just just be um, uh, receptive to hearing hearing their trials, tribulations, and their their sides of things. Um, so none of this happens overnight, and it's not without uh, very painful events that they happen. But um, again, this industry uh, is it's just so um, dynamic. And then you have you've always had the uh, the field and the office aspect of this industry. Um, and then we have a, a great demographic uh, difference uh, between field and office traditionally uh, when, you, when you scope the filings of most companies. Um, so we, we've had a great blend of interaction, uh, but we need, to, we need to make sure, you know, we're not um, making any assumptions about, about where people fit, why people fit in certain positions, and, and that we're not, there are, there's also some ingrained as reading a book, um, uh, Let Them See You by Porter Braswell. I think I had it here. Um, and it's a fascinating book to read. And it, um, it talks about um, making an impact and, and being vocal for yourself if you're in uh, a minority in the business space if you're in a minority role um so reading it through that lens things that i just i just never have encountered in my personal life and one of them was you know at, at parsley you can always trust uh you can go through a stack of resumes but if you trust a referral well um there's a lot of truth to that but also there's a lot of um exclusion to that uh because Naturally, you, you have a, a circle of friends that you've been exposed to um, in your community, you name it. Um, so we, we sat down in our HR and we, we looked at our um, hiring and recruiting practices and we found just unintentional biases. Um, so it just takes, it just takes an effort and, and start with love and respect and give it some effort. And um, I think everybody will be open to it in the long run. We will be back to the Energy Thinks podcast momentarily, but if you work in the oil and gas industry, you understand that we are facing a massive set of disruptions that are unprecedented in our lifetime. This pandemic has upended the world in which we operate in. How can oil and gas leaders face these disruptions in ways that aren't just reactive, but proactive? Tisha Schuler's new book, The Game Changers Playbook, How Oil and Gas Leaders Thrive in an Era of Continuous Disruption, is that guide for oil and gas leaders who want to make sense of this moment and chart a better path forward. Order your copy today at energythinks.com backslash game changer. That's energythinks.com backslash game changer. And now back to the show. Mm, thanks, Matt. There was so much there. Including a couple of things that really resonate with me. One is that um, as a leader in the industry, it is each of our responsibility to go on our own uncomfortable work uh, in this. And I, like you, um, strive to always have one book on racial equity and justice at a time that I'm working my way through. So I'm growing and, and 
uh, and changing it. And I appreciate that you're doing that. The other thing I heard from you, um, I'd be interested in, in your reaction to this. You, you don't have to agree with my read is, is you focused on love and respect. But what I also heard from you was a kind of vulnerability and engagement and just this willingness to show up again and again in different ways to make sure this stays on the radar every day uh, in perpetuity. Um, do you think that's a fair assessment? I think it's more than fair. I think that uh, is kind of the, if you can get to that next level of vulnerability and, it, and that's the part that's tough, um, but it really, I think it will accelerate this whole um, positive movement to, to, um, to get to equality. Uh, mm -hmm. true equality and uh, you have to be so I think that's you're hitting the nail on the head you got to be vulnerable and it's very uncomfortable it's uncomfortable and we're going to make to all of our listeners out there we're going to make missteps but that's not a reason not to take steps um, and then we learn from them and make amends and move on <laughs> um, uh, Matt the, the, another another way that you have gotten attention um, that I think has really set you apart uh, from the pack as, as an important leader in our industry was when you were profiled in the Wall Street Journal and you were outspoken uh, uh, against um, the practice of flaring in the Permian. And that's when actually you really first came to my uh, attention because I thought, who how does this young CEO have the courage to speak out about this really important issue? Uh, and I think one that is, uh, has the potential to really be the Achilles heel uh, of the industry. One, one of many, but, but just a really unnecessarily risky Achilles heel for the industry. So tell us about, um, how, what was that like for you to decide to be so forthright and public in your critique when, as we know, within our industry, a lot of these kind of efforts usually happen behind the scenes and maybe don't always get very far. Well, um, you know, two big topics were flaring. And then uh, of course, with the inventory glut uh, curbing our oil production. Um, and I had just come off, you know, preaching quote unquote to Nate about our three Ps. And then here's a situation um, that was going to cause increased flaring and was against all the things we were trying to say. Um, and then uh, also the little guys were getting crushed. Uh, the little producers and, and my, um, my dad's company was one of them uh, in, the, in the early days. They weren't affected um, during last year's pullback, but we were hearing from tens of independent operators in, across the state of Texas that they're uh, purchasing contracts or they're getting 30 day notifications. They were not being able to pick up their oil. They were getting run over um, by uh, the refiners essentially that were trying to buy, you know, this uh, crude uh, from, you know, if you had a case study on it, it would be called dumping. Uh, whether they went into a price war or not, uh, they flooded the market um, at, at the exact wrong time and they called the people ahead of time and they sent those ships. They didn't send those ships blindly. They called people ahead of time and had a uh, purchase at, at discount for all of that oil. And then they announced, announced the, uh, the production uptick. So, you know, all's fair in, in love and war and, and we don't wanna be in, in war. We wanna have, uh, have a natural marketplace with equal regulation 
there was regulation on the books um, that that we could have uh, put in place. It would have saved um, it would have saved the service sector. You know, instead of that sharp knockdown, uh, would have easily saved tens of thousands of jobs to have a smoother landing by keeping those. Uh, there was many tax to take, and and we were trying, but it was something that just kind of started snowballing into more and more of a, a frustration really to see what was happening uh, right in front of us. It was hurting the, the American producer the most and we weren't doing anything about it. And the narrative uh, got shifted uh, from the other side. You know, it was about 60% still in favor of doing nothing, uh, letting, letting what they were saying markets uh, run their course. Um, and 40% on the side of let's uh, let the sanctioning or the, the regulatory bodies uh, enact rules that were already on, on the books. Uh, and I would be all for letting markets run their course if we were in a real market at that point. Mm -hmm. I don't think we were able to, uh, to discuss as fulsomely at that point with, we had a lot of speculation as to what was going and, and you know, didn't want to put into testimony um, speculation, uh, but I think you know now that time has has worn on that uh, that was that had that did bear out. It was it was a flooding, and so we weren't in market conditions, so we weren't really letting a market work itself out. Um, so that was something I was you can probably hear now. I was I was passionate about it, so I was actually surprised. I mean, I picked up uh, the phone to two or three of my uh, colleagues that uh, we have worked with really well on a lot of other topics and immediately ran into opposition. So they, they um, testified on the other side. Um, so I was actually shocked that, um, that there was that much resistance. Um, you could just, could have been neutral um, and let the markets run the course in their definition uh, to testify against the other side, you know, at that time, they were using, you know, examples that inventory is not physically going to fill up. Well, no, because prices go negative. You know, mm -hmm. there is a market component to this, uh, but I don't think anyone wanted negative oil pricing in March when we uh, when we raised this issue. Um, but to the credit of the Railroad Commission, they they had a hearing. They went through the process. It was a good debate and a good discussion. And at a minimum, it raised awareness that something was coming. And uh, here, here are leaders of industry saying that it's, it's not a fluke. This is going to be bad. And, and it was worse than we anticipated. I think we were trying to stave off what we anticipated to be, uh, you know, high single digit, low, te low teens pricing. Uh, never, would have, never would have predicted negative pricing out of it. So it's one of those uh, things that you, you don't want to be that right on. <laughs> right. And that, I think all of us remember the day oil went negative, not a great, not a great day for any of us. Have, um, ha have you felt like there've been long-term ramifications for being so bold and taking on, you know, peers, colleagues, and friends, or, um, ha have those wounds healed, healed over? And uh, does time, does time, has time moved on in a way that, um, some of these things are, are, there's more consensus on? Well, no, I'm, I, I do think that, um, you know, the wounds of the battle uh, heal pretty quickly. And, um, 
I think I've, I've, I've been surprised with the amount of respect that people have given on follow-ups because I know if, if I'm making this, it's, it's not just off the cuff. It's I have a view from data, um, from a momentum of things. And, and really it's for my view, it, it, and it can be wrong a lot of times, but of what could really, it's for the industry at the end of the day. Um, and uh, have a lot of good discussion with those people that did testify on the other side, although I didn't like um, you know, their, their stance, it um, have had a lot of good follow-up conversations. So I'd say 90% of it, um, you know, it's, it's a healthy agree to disagree and you move on and you always have the one or two fun stories that uh, I'll be, I'll be uh, rekindling over beer for a long time. But uh, uh, other than that, it was 90% uh, really healthy um, and good discussions. Well, that's good. And I think there's more, you know, hearkening back to where we started um, with some of this idea of poking at our own shortcomings, our industry does need to be challenging itself and each other. Um, because we're, we're facing an inevitable pivot into the energy future where some companies are going to evolve and some companies aren't. And so I do think that, that we can all learn from those kinds of internal battles, um, but, but we do need to be doing it with a mind to our shortcomings and to where we want to be leading into the future. So uh, I, am, I embrace more constructive uh, challenges <laughs> among, amongst each other. Um, draw, drawing off of that um, and your earlier reference to um, some of the history um, of, our, of our industry, I'm curious about the values that you draw upon in your work. Um, some of them really shine through in the conversation we've had so far, but I imagine 2020 tested you, the, the stories you've told, uh, the changes you've made, the additions to your personal life, like a baby. Um, in what way, what, what values are really important to you and, and have any been tested or changed by, by some of these situations? Let's see, as we walk through kind of a, a management approach and values that that I've kind of connected with and GreenLake's going to be uh, using is is the RAC approach, R-A-C-K, and that's uh, respect, accountability, competitiveness, and kindness. And respect and kindness are kind of the bookends there, and they have two different uh, approaches and descriptions in, in your value ethos, I guess. And then accountability and competitiveness on the interior. Um, first six months when we took over at CEO, uh, we had accountability moments uh, in every Monday morning meeting. We went around the table and people were pretty guarded on the first ones. And, and what they turned into were, were kind of mistakes that happened in the prior week. And it's like, guys, we, we're running a $10 billion organization, uh, billions of dollars of CapEx. If there's not mistakes happening, uh, then you know this is this is a false world. You know we, we are making mistakes, so let's learn from them. And and then it, it was guarded for the first month or so, and then people were just came in and then we kind of had we joked was, uh, about uh don't just go make mistakes because we like talking about them. So we we, we were joking that we uh, went too far, but we were really learning in the, the different groups talking about you know I. I said I was going to be able to hit it in this time frame. We missed it by four days, but here's why. And that was the accountability and people embraced that. 
Um, and then the competitiveness, uh, you got to be able to do it without backstabbing, but we're all, you know, a lot of people have athletic backgrounds and um, some of my most influential people in, in my life have been coaches. And um, just that leaving it all on the field and putting your best forward and, and coming out with a W is so rewarding. But even, even if you leave it all out there and you come up short, uh, you sleep well at night, you know, you know, uh, but you still have this desire to win. Um, that's got to be important as businesses to, to be, have, have a healthy level of competition. Um, so that's kind of, that's kind of at the, the micro level, but the industry level, um, I think we can lean on innovation. Um, and then what are we doing to provide mobility and comfort? That's kind of what our industry mm. is about. And it expands, uh, our average lifespan. So when you think about, um, you know, global growth and the, the poorest of the poor out there. Um, we have so much help uh, to do to be providing on both the mobility and the comfort and the lifespan side of things, uh, just access to, to our industry. So um, I think there's, there's a bright future in that front. We just got to hold true to um, some inner values. I don't think that I got um, pressured on, on any particular one. Um, the one that's always you got to temper is the competitiveness. You know, if you fan that flame too much, uh, you can overcook things and uh, you can turn fighting inward. That's why you have to be kind of bounded by some of this respect and, and kindness. But, uh, but you, you see the little flare-ups um, uh, amongst teams and, and uh, you kind of navigate through them. Mm, I really was enjoying your description because it harkened back to an earlier interview I did with a, uh, a group uh, called the Avatar Project that's um, really uh, incubating and focusing and, and funding innovation in the oil and gas uh, industry. And one of the really important takeaways I took about uh, away from that was this idea of failing forward. And I think that's the cult culture shift that you were describing with your accountability. I, I think of accountability as sort of a stagnant, but now I'm updating uh, my thinking as I, as I do in these podcasts to think about accountability as a way to fail forward. And maybe fail is too strong a word in the way you described it, but it's the same idea. How are we going to take these situations and learn and be better and engage and embrace them? So that was really... Um, that was really helpful. Thank you. Uh, so you you mentioned your athletic background, and I I want to give a shout out to Scott Marshall, who is one of Adam and Teen's longtime interns and uh, is a kicker for the Colorado School of Mines, uh, your alma mater, and um, he and they're pretty good. I need to point out um, <laughs> um, undefeated and uh, top 10 nationally in 2019. So um, he happened to notice that your old teammates called you smoothie because you were consistently calm. I think we might have seen indications of that uh, in this, but can you talk a little bit about, um, uh, again, you had mentioned being a student athlete and the influence of your coaches, but what do you think did, did some of that athletic experience give you this calm demeanor? And I would add courage that you bring to your work today. I think, um, I, I'm just so fortunate for, you know, the childhood and, and teen and collegiate experience that I had, uh, both with sports, but also just the teachers along the way. And, um, I think about, 
these big moments. And, and there were some big moments for a teenager uh, or, or a young adult um, on the field and, and you, you live through that pressure point. So I think, I think dealing with pressure, absolutely. And, um, and then seeing the response of your team members and knowing how, how teams uh, gel, start to gel together. And just the course, over the course of the season, you come in and training and then you have your first game and you knock some cobwebs off and, and then you start to, to really become that, that team that feels like you got each other's backs and you can do anything together. Um, so in a, in a, um, I guess in a bad way, I heard, and I think I was watching a, a Dateline episode or something, but there's a, there's a French term that says, um, you know, things in twos, humans in twos do things that you would never do in ones. They were talking obviously about a, a negative situation, but, but that's definitely true in a positive situation. I mean, when you come together as a team, you, you feel more emboldened, you, you, you're more powerful, you, you're more creative. Um, and you saw all of that through sports. So I think it was a great trial run. And I, and even, you know, a very stressful time for me. I was, um, as we were building partially, I was probably, I joked that I was one of the only CEOs that didn't want the job. Uh, you know, Brian and I have a great relationship. He's a extremely innovative business thinker. Um, I was always focused on the engineering and the drilling side of things, completion side of things. And um, so we had a great partnership. When it was time, you know, it was discussed a year ahead of time and um, the transition, um, when it was, when it finally came due, you know, there, it was, it was a, a stressful situation. Uh, we had our largest shareholder in November. Uh, I took over in January, but the prior November, um, our largest shareholder Viking uh, blew out of the stock completely. Mm -hmm. uh, so we underperformed about two weeks ahead of the rest of the energy sector um, when everybody else started underperforming at the end of 18. And um, they blew out of the stock for something totally unrelated to us. They, um, they were the number one shareholder in PG&E, the uh, utility in California, when they burned down uh, the north part of the state. So they just kind of liquidated and ceased to exist as a fund. Um, but that had a major ripple effect to us. And it was, you know, we're setting strategy and kind of doing a pivot into the free cash flow um, and, and returns focused model and had to hold, had to hold Pat to the fire. Um, correctly took a lot of challenges from the board. You, you wanna be challenged to make sure you can stick to it. And I think all those sporting experiences, it, it might sound trite, but I mean, they really helped me. I could come back, I could take a deep breath and I could say, you know, the sun's gonna rise tomorrow and mm -hmm. let's stick to our guns and let's, let's execute and let's deliver. And, um, and so, so I think it's, I think it's definitely helpful to, to go through any sort of team bonding experience uh, throughout your life. It strikes me too that the, a team is a place we first learn those um, competitiveness lessons. You have to have that just right amount of internal competitiveness, but you have to focus most of the competitive energy on the other teams. Um, and so that's a, another interesting place where you learn, where you learn, as you say, not to overcook the competitive um, piece. So that, that, that's really interesting. So my last question for you, 
um, is in what ways are you changing your own leadership style now to meet the challenges uh, that you face? You have new leadership roles on boards of directors, um, your, your, um, your new venture. W- what ways are you evolving um, as a leader uh, at this moment? That's a great question. Um, you know, I, I guess we'll try to keep this uh, rated PG, but uh, uh, many years I tried to have a New Year's resolution of uh, to be a better a-hole. So <laughs> and what that mean? and I usually make it January uh, to February and then I kind of fall back in. I really, my natural, everybody would be different in their evolution, but my natural instinct is to to uh, pull out what people's ideas are. And I love to get everything out on the table, listen, um, and sometimes sleep on it. And then we kind of formulate a plan and uh, answer. But there's times where you just need to speak up and immediately go with your gut. And a couple of the experiences, I mean, you, you listed three of them last year, three big events about uh, this, the NAEP speech, the um, the regulatory um, proration hearings, um, and you, you got to speak up. So as, as you've built 20 plus years of experience, it's okay to fall back on that instinct and, and speak a little sooner. Um, so that's something I'm working on as a leader is trying to give a little bit more early input um, so that we don't go sometimes it's starting to get for our industry in a pretty urgent uh situation uh we've got to we've got to kind of coalesce we've got to nail the messaging we've got to deliver on the results we've got to do things the right way um so uh transitioning into being being okay about um kind of quickly saying the thoughts and a lot of that is a is as a board seat you know and that's been a great experience for me these two board seats um not being active on the management team, you, you come together, you know, once a quarter, you've got to get your, you got to get your points across concisely and quickly, respectfully, um, but hope that you make a good argument to where people can uh, take them and, and, and go, go do some, something different. So um, uh, that's probably, that's probably what I'm working on the most. That's the evolution. I'm glad, I'm glad to hear that because I think for the oil and gas industry to lead as we should into the energy future, we're going to have to have more courageous and yet vulnerable game-changing leaders step up and call 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 each other to account. So I'm glad to hear you're doing that and I hope you keep doing it. And I will welcome you back anytime to tell us more stories, lessons learned and advice for the rest of us. Thanks so much for being with us, Matt. Thanks so much for having me, Tisha. You're, you're a game-changing leader too. And, uh, Let's get this industry locking arms and marching forward uh, for good. Awesome. Thank you, Matt. Thanks. That's our episode for today. Thanks so much to Matt for taking the time to share his insights with us. Um, As you heard, the really interesting game-changing insight for me is shifting this idea of accountability to something that's stagnant to something that's uh, really dynamic and helping companies and company culture 
fail forward, which is a theme that has been uh, recurring in our podcast. I'd like to know what you found uh, interesting or something that changed your perspective. So visit our podcast website, energythinks.com podcast, and let me know. You can subscribe, uh, Spotify, iTunes, wherever you listen. Um, If you like what you're hearing, please take a moment and rate us, and please take a moment and tell one of your colleagues about us. Thanks so much to Scott Marshall, Lindsay Gage, and Michael Tanner for making this possible. Thank you for listening to the Energy Thinks podcast. Until next time, I'm Tisha Schuler, wishing you and yours happiness, prosperity, and good health.